Hello dreamers and welcome to episode 250. Before we get started, I have a few quick notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend on listeners to help keep it going and growing, and there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. It helps to give us more visibility and for new listeners to find us. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do all the good stuff, like, comment, share, retweet, etc. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can become a subscriber through Patreon. Starting at $1 a month, you will gain access to dozens of episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. Plus, you get thank you cards and small gifts from me, depending on your tier, as long as you opt in when you sign up. If you don't want a monthly subscription, you can go annual, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I mailed out a bunch of thank you cards last week, so if you signed up for Patreon in September or October, you should be getting something in the mail from me if you opted in. I'm working on getting through the November and December signups, and I'll get to January very soon. And I'll have more thank yous in the next episode. All right, let's get this started. This was one of the biggest stories of 2021. And now seemed like a good time to revisit it since it has pretty much a beginning, a middle, and an end. And many of you already know how this story does end, and you know it's not a happy one. It's a story that touched a lot of us especially those who survived what Gabby Petito didn't. We came to know her name not in the way that she would have wanted. She had her sight set on becoming what we would refer to today as a social media influencer. She wanted to share a lifestyle that involved travel, adventure, and healthy living, but she would never live to see herself become a household name. This is a story about a young woman who longed to create her own unique path in life, one that would take her across the country and back again. She wished to experience what the world had to offer firsthand, and it might be a little cliche to say that she chased sunshine, rainbows, and butterflies, and also happiness, love, and joy, and she had the courage and the ambition to get out from behind her devices and go for it. Unfortunately, she brought along with her the complete opposite of who she was and what she was looking for as an adventure seeker as she embarked on this journey. And she would pay the ultimate price for it. Her name is Gabby Petito. Gabrielle Venora Petito was born March 19, 1999 in Blue Point, New York, which is on Long Island. She was the only child of Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, but she had six half-siblings that her parents had with their respective significant others. We got to know them because when Gabby's story hit the media, we saw all four of them stand together in solidarity. Gabby attended Bayport Blue Point High School. 
which is where she became acquainted with a man who would ultimately become her killer. Gabby graduated in 2017, and while most of her friends were headed to college, that just wasn't in the stars for her, at least not yet anyway. The high school that Gabby attended was quite prestigious. More than 90% of her graduating class were going to college. And while Gabby was a bright and excellent student, she wanted to explore other places and things. She wanted to do what many of us only ever really talk about doing. And we usually talk about doing it after we retire. Gabby wasn't going to wait that long. The world was calling her, and she readily answered. So instead of going to college, Gabby wanted to find a job. She wanted to work, earn, and save so that she could begin chasing those adventures. There are an infinite number of things to see and do around the world, and she needed to get started if she was going to experience it all. And when she worked, she would make friends with pretty much everyone that she worked with, and she always talked about her desires to travel and see the country. She was just the kind of person who really didn't know a stranger. She was kind and sweet and caring and loving. And from the way that her friends describe her, I mean, I don't know her, but you know how some people can just be so happy and perky all the time that it's almost annoying, but you're like borderline so mad at yourself because you can't help but adore her? Smile, hugs, perkiness and all, right? Those who worked with Gabby said that it was just in her personality to try and make those around her feel good and happy all the time. It was about a year and a half after Gabby graduated that she reconnected with a young man that she knew from high school, though he graduated one year before she did in 2016. And because many of you already know how this story ends, we're just going to call him Gabby's killer. It's my understanding that the two of them really only knew each other in passing. There had never been any sort of romantic relationship between them. So just as Gabby had gotten back in touch with him, she soon found out that he was planning a move down to Florida where his parents had just recently relocated to. His parents were the owners of Juicer Services, a company that they launched in 2017 that sold and serviced commercial juicing equipment which they operated out of their home. Now, there was a time from September of 2017 through January of 2019 that Gabby was living and working in Carolina Beach, North Carolina. Gabby and her killer would go on their first date in March of 2019. She would have been about to turn or just turn 20, and he was 21. Their first date, they went out for sushi. Now, Gabby and her killer did apparently have some interests in common. They both enjoyed being in the outdoors. They enjoyed nature, art, health, and fitness. But when it came to their personalities, according to Gabby's friends and acquaintances, the two of them couldn't be more different. You see, while Gabby enjoyed the outdoors, not only experiencing it, but also sharing those experiences with whomever she was with, and on social media, he embraced the outdoors because he preferred the isolation, as people who knew him described him as being a pretty hardcore loner. 
And what better place to not have to be around people than someplace desolate, far away and out in the open where you just don't have to deal with anything or anyone. He didn't have a lot of friends. I mean, once this case became national news and the media started looking for people to talk to, to interview, people who knew the killer, who may have gone to school with him or worked with him, they would come to find that there really wasn't anyone who was ever really particularly close to him. But you know, Gabby, based on what her friends and family have said about her, was probably one of those types of people who can always see the best in others. And she was one of those who believed in love and she romanticized it. So if she ever had any reservations about him, she didn't let it get in the way of wanting to find the good in him. I'm sure he wasn't a terrible boyfriend, at least in the beginning. But then again, they rarely are early on. So when Gabby's killer picked up and moved to Florida, she went along and together they lived with his parents in the city of Northport, which is located on the Gulf Coast, about halfway between Sarasota to the north and Fort Myers to the south. And Gabby had a good relationship with his family. She was getting along well, but you know, she had that yearning for travel and adventure. And she wanted to try and figure out a way where she would be able to do that and earn a living. And there are many people out there these days who are able to turn to social media as a means of making their passions into a way of making money. YouTubers, TikTokers, Insta-famous people who post what they do in their daily lives and manage to build a fan base. And once they're able to grow their audience, then they're able to monetize. Gabby wanted to grow her own following by becoming a social media influencer. She wanted to inspire people with this lifestyle evolving around travel, nature, and healthy living. She would be able to live her dreams of seeing the world with the hopes of being able to support herself with her online presence. And I think she did have the personality, the presence, and the vibe to have been able to draw people in if only she had been given a chance. So Gabby found herself in Florida and she was really starting to come into her own in terms of who she wanted to be both in life and on social media. She was starting to have the confidence that she could really make this happen for herself. She was driven, she knew what she wanted, and she was going to go for it. So towards the end of the summer of 2019, Gabby and her killer had been working at Publix in Northport. That's a grocery store located in the southern states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, South and North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. But they both ended up quitting when COVID-19 quarantine began in March of 2020. So anyway, by the fall of 2019, Gabby and her killer had been together going on about seven or eight months or so. And, you know, I'm sure she's sharing with him about all of her hopes and dreams when it comes to traveling and seeing the country. And they decided that they were going to drive across the United States together. Destination, California, of course. It was going to be an amazing time. It was the perfect time of year. And it was a chance for Gabby to sort of dip her toe into what she ultimately wanted to do, which was to not just make this a vacation, but a way of life. Gabby was going to launch her social media and see if there was really a space for her in the world of influencers. And it was really meant to be more than just pictures of herself as she made her way across the country. 
She wanted to inspire people with a lifestyle that involved eating a healthy diet, clean living, conservation, but also living a distraction-free life in order to be able to enjoy the beauty of the world. Gabby made her first trip in her car along with her killer to visit sites and points of interest along the way up and down the Pacific coast. And based on her post on social media, it did appear as though she was having the best time ever. Along the way, Gabby documented her travels to her Instagram and included pictures that she took at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Carolina Beach Boardwalk in North Carolina, points of interest in Bedford, Texas, Pikes Peak in Colorado, the Santa Monica Pier and Yosemite National Park in California, and the Vegas Strip in Nevada. In February of 2020, Gabby started a TikTok under the name Gabby Nova. Based on her Instagram post, it seems as though she was back in Florida in March of 2020, which is when she celebrated her 21st birthday. But within three months, she was traveling again, posting pictures taken in Georgia. And in July of 2020, Gabby posted on her Instagram that her killer had proposed and she accepted, captioning the picture with, you make life feel unreal and every day with you is such a dream. At some point after they returned from their trip to California and back, Gabby had begun working to save up for a van that she wanted to use for her travels. It was going to be the thing that would not only transport them everywhere and anywhere they wanted to go around the country, but they also intended to live out of it as well. And in December of 2020, Gabby had saved enough to purchase a 2012 Ford Transit Connect that had been customized into a camper. By July of 2021, both she and her killer were posting on their social media with the hashtag van life. They shared an Instagram and a TikTok account. It was Gabby really not only having a dream, but also making it happen and she was very excited about it. I guess maybe her killer was too, or at least he acted like it, because things seemed to fall apart pretty quickly, not too long after they hit the road for their second trip. Of course, Gabby had it in her mind that this was going to be the journey of a lifetime, and she was excited about not only living it, but also the prospect of sharing these experiences with the world and with someone who she thought loved her. Gabby's posts on Instagram about the two of them getting engaged were filled with the same amount of enthusiasm and excitement as the journey that they were about to embark on with one another. It really appeared that all of the things that Gabby had ever hoped and wished for, all the things that she ever romanticized about in her head were coming to fruition. She was a young woman who believed in love, those who knew her described her as a hopeless romantic, and she thought she had found it in the person who would end up extinguishing her light. When you take a look inside of Gabby's van and how she put everything together, you can just tell that this is a girl who was just so happy. There was a pillow on the mattress set up in the back of the van that said, my happy place embroidered on it. And it's really heartbreaking because we know how each passing day in that van as they traverse the country just became more and more and more miserable. 
yet she laid down every night next to that pillow. Of course, we have the advantage of 2020 hindsight, and you really can't know what an experience is going to be like until you actually go and live it. But it kind of seemed like neither one of these two really actually thought this whole thing through, Gabby in particular. She probably saw other people on social media living this hashtag van life. These people are always going to put their best and happiest faces on their Instagrams. But there are plenty of us through our life experiences that know that we absolutely could not be in a van with a boyfriend through the summer for weeks on end, right? And Gabby is probably really depending on her killer to be her safety and her security along the way, you know? And the irony of that is not lost on any of us when we realize that Gabby chose him to do this trip with because it would not have been safe or wise for her to do this alone or even with a girlfriend. And then it would turn out that the most dangerous thing that she would encounter on the wide open road was sitting right next to her. So yeah, that isn't lost on us at all. Gabby and her killer began their van life road trip on July 2nd, 2021, setting off from Blue Point, New York, Gabby's hometown, in the converted white Ford Transit. Three days later, on July 5th, Gabby made her first Instagram post with pictures taken at Monument Rocks Natural Landmark in Scott City, Kansas. So that's more than 1,600 miles or nearly 2,600 kilometers from Long Island. Between July 8th and 11th, Gabby and her killer were in the state of Colorado. They posted pictures taken in Colorado Springs, and Gabby posed for pics at the Great Sand Dunes National Park in Duncan. From July 16th through the 22nd, so for about three weeks into their National Park hop, they went hiking and camping in Zion National Park in Springdale, Utah, and at Bryce Canyon in Tropic. Then on July 30th, Gabby and her killer were in Canyonlands National Park, which is located in the southeastern portion of Utah. However, for the next 12 days, Gabby went silent on social media. She finally posted pictures of herself and her killer in Arches National Park, which is just north of Moab, Utah, and a little ways north of where they last posted in Canyonlands. So... What went on between the two of them in those 12 intervening days, I don't know. But what I do know is social media influencers that are doing what Gabby was doing, especially in the midst of being on what was supposed to be the trip of a lifetime, usually don't go dark for that many days in a row. Unless they are wrapped up in some sort of social media feud or drama, and they'll even post about that, and they'll let their followers know that they're going on a mental health break or taking some time away from social media, followed by the obligatory encouraging comments from all of their followers. While Gabby did have some followers, she hadn't reached that level of a online presence just yet where she could be making money. At the time that she went missing, which thanks to that piece of shit that murdered her, we don't know what day she actually died. But around the time that she went missing, right before her story exploded into the media, she had about a thousand followers on TikTok and Instagram each. Of course, and sadly, Gabby's following also exploded along with her story. But she wouldn't be around to see it. 
Anyway, I found it to be very troubling that Gabby would go radio silent for that many days in a row when she was working to build up her following. But I think that we can kind of infer that things were probably not going well because we all like to post things on our social medias when life is good. I myself scale back on posting when things get hard and I don't post about it. When I'm feeling better, then I'll get back to it. Lots of us are like that. I don't know for sure, but it was likely the isolation and the confinement that Gabby was experiencing with her killer that was starting to wear on the two of them, as it was going on about seven weeks or so since they embarked on this road trip. Whatever it was that was going on between the two of them, based on what was being posted on social media, you would never think that it was anything less than the time of their lives. The pictures, the landscape, the nature, the scenery. I mean, this girl had a drone too. She was capturing her dreams every which way that she possibly could. And you've probably heard the soundbite of Gabby saying, I love the van. And her camera pans over her head to the van, which is parked directly behind her. From the outside, the van looks like a regular old work van that you would find a handyman driving around or a delivery person. But when you opened it up and looked inside, it was a world of Gabby's own making. Before I sat down and started taking a closer look at the story for this episode, I wasn't really all that impressed with that van of hers. To me, it just looked like a regular old van. But this girl put her heart and soul into it. And when I really stopped to take the time to take a good look at the inside as I was researching the story, I kind of fell in love with the van too. It really hurt my heart and hit me in the feels as I watched the video and looked at the pictures that Gabby took of the inside of her happy place. And looking back, when you compare and contrast the way Gabby was on social media versus the way her killer was on social media, it's really a wonder how Gabby ever really felt that this guy was the right person for her to be with and to bring along on this trip. In a documentary I watched, it shows a great deal of what Gabby posted on social media. And then it showed a screenshot of one of his posts where he's just really lame, irrelevant, and pointless. He made a post in Moab and there's this picture of him standing atop some rock formation. And his caption, instead of talking about the beauty or the experience, he wrote, quote, Humans are primates, great apes in fact, but I don't know how great we are as a species. Chimpanzees shared 98.8% of their DNA with humans. Our closest living creature is in some way our relative, even trees. Only 800 million years ago, animal cells started appearing on Earth, comprised of mainly the same parts and following the same functions of, as plant cells, requiring oxygen, solar energy, minerals, nutrients, and water. This tree, the one that he's standing next to in the photo, was surviving in only inches of soil in an area of extreme heat and drought. So in all that BS that he wrote, trying to appear all intellectual and profound, he spelt drought wrong. He actually used the wrong word and wrote D-R-A-U-G-H-T, which is a completely different meaning altogether. And okay, I mean, is this the shit that this guy is saying as he and Gabby are driving along, trying to be on this adventure together? Seriously? I'd be tossing him out of the van and he would be eating my dust 
If he was going on and on about how great apes are a species, yet has doubt as to how great humans are. If I wanted an anthropology lesson, I'd be in a classroom not on this journey. And this is just an example of how dissimilar these two are. Not that they have to be the same, but I mean, come on. This guy was completely wrong to be on this road trip with her. Unfortunately, she had to learn it the hard way. Another caption he wrote said, Zion is proof that mankind can ruin anything, even in an effort to preserve it. Beautiful park just with an unfortunate infestation of human beings. I mean, how stupid is that? He's in Zion National Park. First off, last I checked, he was a human. And the fact that he's in the park means he's very much a part of this so-called infestation. Secondly, he's on a fucking cross-country American National Park hop. He's infesting nature preserves one state at a time. There's all kinds of pictures of him and Gabby infesting random places and points of interest all over social media. And thirdly, preservation efforts and beautiful parks wouldn't even be a thing if humankind wasn't around to do the preserving or the appreciating of the beauty. And lastly, it's like, what the fuck, dude? You did the absolute most unquestionably worst thing humankind does to one another. Cold-blooded murder. In a national park. This guy was the infestation that he was referring to in his caption, and it just sounds like a little bit of projection of himself. He was the infestation. He infested those national parks, nobody else, just him. He infested our states, he infested our country, and he infested Gabby's life. At first, I was thinking that this guy must have had everyone fooled in order to be able to somehow be with a young woman who was way out of his league and he didn't even deserve. But based on just a couple of social media posts that I've seen, it looked like the writing was on the wall. If this was his shitty attitude about everything all along this trip, it's really no wonder that they started fighting on the road. Who the hell wants to travel the country with someone that only knows how to appreciate the negative in everything? Gabby's friends said that she was a hopeless romantic. Men like her killer prey on vulnerabilities just like that. Everything about him, with the exception of a handful of pictures with Gabby, everything about him was dark, sinister, and evil. One of the most troubling things that came to light in the media soon after the story broke was the body cam footage of Gabby and her killer being pulled over by the Moab police in Utah. The police were responding to a 911 call that someone made regarding a domestic-type incident, where the caller stated in the call that the man was slapping or hitting the woman. The following is what transpired when the officers who pulled them over began interacting with them. This interaction between Gabby, her killer, and the Moab police went on for an hour and 17 minutes, so I'm not going to go over their entire conversation, just some key points. I've heard a lot of this audio and watched a lot of the video before, but because Gabby was crying through a lot of it, I really wanted to take a closer look at the words that she was actually saying without all of the sobs. The officers were following Gabby's van and thinking that the driver might have been intoxicated because the van hit a curb and they were going 45 miles per hour in a 15 mile per hour zone. 
for those of you who kilometer that 72 kilometers per hour in a 24 zone. They asked the driver, Gabby's killer, to put the car in park and place the keys on the dashboard. The officer asked for their names and he asked Gabby, what's going on? How come you're crying? And she stated, I'm just crying. We've just been fighting this morning, some personal issues. And her killer stated, it's a long day. We were camping yesterday, camping the stuff, wise and stuff. I'm sorry I hit that bump there. Gabby stated, I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry. So right off the bat, you can see that while Gabby's killer is nervous, rambling and not making any sense because we know he was in some way getting physical with Gabby, she is right away trying to take the blame and the responsibility for his shitty driving. Gabby was asked to get out of the car while her killer was asked to put the keys on the hood of the car and he complied and continued to be apologetic. At this point, they were separated and the officer continued speaking to Gabby and he asked her, you wanna tell me what's going on? Gabby answered, yeah, I don't know if some days I really have bad OCD. I was just cleaning and straightening up back in the van. I was apologizing to him and saying, I'm sorry that I'm so mean because sometimes I have OCD and sometimes I can get really frustrated. Not like mean towards him. I just like my vibe is I'm in a bad mood. And I was just saying I'm sorry if I'm in a bad mood. I just, I had so much work I was going to do on my computer this morning. Okay, so now we are learning that Gabby's killer was a slob and had no respect for the way Gabby wanted her van to be kept. And we must be clear that this is Gabby's van. It is all hers. It's in her name. She worked for it. She decorated it. She fixed it up. It's hers and hers alone. He is a guest in it. He has absolutely no stake or claim on it. And Gabby had every single right in the world to complain if he was doing anything in any way to cause her van to be in any sort of condition that she did not want it to be in. This guy should have considered himself to be extremely lucky to have been invited along on this road trip. Gabby worked her ass off to save up in order to make this dream of hers come true. She was probably really excited to have someone she thought was special to share it with, only for him to turn the whole thing into a nightmare, and ultimately, he destroyed everything. The contrast between these two, it's like day and night. Gabby was also blaming herself for everything. She's the one that has the OCD about the way that she wants things. And I know people tend to use the OCD diagnosis kind of flippantly. And my daughter, who is very close in age to Gabby, born the same year, also says that she has OCD about stuff too. Even though we know people with OCD, that their lives are very difficult and painful to a point where they can't even leave their homes or have jobs because of whatever it is that's causing their obsessive compulsive disorder. But Gabby probably didn't have OCD, but she likes what she likes. And she wanted things the way she wanted them. And good for her for standing up for herself and not letting any man tell her or make her do anything differently just because he didn't like it or doesn't want to comply. I don't know what they fought over. We can only infer. My guess is that her killer is being a shitty boyfriend and she was calling him out on it. And you know, we haven't gotten to it yet, but the biggest red flag of it all I found to be in one line that Gabby told to the police officer. He doesn't really believe that I could do any of it. Yeah, her boyfriend said that to her. 
Seriously, Gabby is on a cross-country road trip as a part of her effort in building an online social media presence as an influencer. And the man that she's engaged to is telling her while in the middle of the trip and getting physical with her that she'll never make it. I wonder what that conversation looked like after she bought this van, converted it into her happy place. I mean, it's so adorable inside. I'm not going to lie. I'm not inspired to live out of a van, but she definitely makes you feel like we should be surrounding ourselves with the beautiful things that we love. And most of us already do, I'm sure. I do, but it makes me want to go buy some flowers and butterflies and rainbows for my car too. Gabby even got a drone. A drone so she could take those beautiful videos of the landscape from the sky. She's surrounded herself with the things that she loved and wanted. And the asshole that she brought along with her is telling her that she'll never make it happen for herself. What a piece of shit. If anybody that you think you love ever, ever, ever tells you that you can't do it, immediately tell that person straight away to fuck off. Yes, you can. The only reason anyone who claims to love you and care about you would ever say something like that is because they're insecure, inadequate, and would never in a million years be able to achieve the dreams that you have. And in order to make themselves feel less shitty about their own existence is to try and make you feel shitty about yours. We deserve people in our lives who build us up, not tear us down. So the officer said to Gabby, why don't we do this? Why don't you sit down in the backseat of my car? You're not in any trouble, okay? I'm not going to be putting handcuffs on you. You obviously don't have any weapons. I'm going to get you in the air conditioning, let you take a breath, relax a little bit, and then I'll come back and talk to you in a few minutes, okay? Gabby agreed and complied. Then he went to go talk to her killer. When the police approached him, he did something kind of interesting, or maybe it's because he was feeling nervous or felt like he was being suspected of something. But Gabby's killer spoke first, asking the officer, Gabrielle, did you talk to my fiance? And the officer asked, what's that? And he repeated, did you talk to Gabrielle? Now, I think it's pretty obvious that the cop already talked to her. And you know what her killer is asking this kind of question reminds me of? When someone who is guilty of doing something wrong and wants to try to feel out what the cops know, I think he wants to try and get an idea of what Gabby told the officer so that he can know if she told him what really happened, that he got physical with her like the 911 caller had stated, or to try and make sure that he and Gabby have their stories straight. I don't know what happened in the time the police officers turned on their lights to have them pull over to the time that the officers approached their car but I wouldn't be surprised if Gabby's killer instructed her on what to say and what to do in order to either minimize what was going on between them or he told her to take the blame for whatever it was they were getting pulled over for or both. He probably figured that Gabby would be able to get the both of them out of trouble because she was young, pretty, and white. And if he thought that, and if any of us thought that, we may or may not have been wrong. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. So the Moab police officers who handled this domestic call have been criticized for the way they handled this situation with Gabby and her killer. As judgy as I can be, I don't really feel like I'm in a position to second guess the things that happened that day. It is what it is. And it's very hard to look back on those moments during that traffic stop and to see how upset Gabby was. 
Her friends have said that it would take a lot for her to become that hysterical. It's easy to sit here and Monday morning quarterback it and say that one or both of them should have been arrested. In any other situation, any other place, this probably would have been a domestic violence charge, possibly for the both of them. But anyway, let's get back to what was said during the traffic stop and we'll talk about it some more because the situation does get more confusing, partly because of the things that Gabby would go on to say to the officers. So after Gabby's killer asked the officers if they had spoken to Gabrielle, the officer stated, yeah, I just spoke to her, so you want to do me a favor? Let's go ahead and get you to step out of the vehicle, all right? You're not in any trouble right now, so tell me what's going on. Come over here. Gabby's killer stated, she gets worked up sometimes, and I try to really distance myself from her. And I locked the car and I walked away from her. What happened this morning is she's trying to start up this little website, blog and everything. So every time we had a really nice morning. If anything, she just got worked up because we we're trying to get going and get our day going. And the officer asked, okay, do you want to tell me about those scratches on your face? And he replied, she had the cell phone in her hand. That's why I was pushing her away because she wanted, I the keys so I could walk away. I said, let's just take a breather. Let's not go anywhere. Just calm down for a minute. She was getting worked up and she had her phone and was trying to get the keys from me. I was trying to, I know I shouldn't push her. I was just trying to push her away to go. Let's take a minute and step back and breathe and see. She got me with her phone. The officer noted that Gabby's killer had a mark in his hand and he said that was from a wire. Then the officer asked about hitting the curb and he said, that was Gabby grabbing the wheel. She said, I can't believe you're getting pulled over and she grabbed the wheel. The officer asked, what about the speed? Did she take over the pedal on you? And he replied, if I was going fast, I'm sorry. No, it was probably just the moment, the moment of I'm still freaking out. In general, seeing the lights flashing and her grabbing the wheel. So if I sped up, I'm sorry about that. If I was speeding before that, I'm sorry about that. And the officer said, yeah, it took quite a bit to catch up to you. He replied, oh, I'm sorry about that. We were just going into the park again to get water. We have a six-gallon water container we fill up, so we're just getting water for our hike. I was trying to keep everything calm and quiet because there's still plenty to go for a hike. I'm really sorry about that. And then the officer replied, do me a favor. If you want to go ahead and just take a seat right there over here on the curb for me, and then he replied again, and if I was speeding, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. The officer, continuing to ignore these pathetic apologies, asked him, do you have anything in your pocket or anything like that? He replied, no, just a wallet. The officer told him to take a seat and then asked for his ID, his first name and last name, all the incidentals. And then he asks if he could sit in the shade because of his bald head. Boo who? What a punk. He can push and shove Gabby around, tell her that she's not capable of accomplishing anything, but he can't take a little bit of heat. I seriously don't know what Gabby saw in this guy. But anyway, in the meantime, while the officer ran his name and birth date, I guess checking for anything like warrants or whatever, Gabby was speaking to another officer. She was asked, he just grabbed you? Did he hit you though? It's okay if you're saying you hit him. I understand if he hit you, but we want to know the truth, if he actually hit you. Some of the interaction between this officer was inaudible, but he's trying to ascertain whether or not 
he hit or slapped her. Gabby denied this happened and stated, no, he grabbed me with his hand. When asked about drinking, she said that they had not been. The officers then discussed with each other what each of the two of them were saying. One of them noted that Gabby was kind of hyperventilating, that they don't drink, that she said she was hitting him and he hit the curb. And then one of the officers asked Gabby if she tended to have a lot of anxiety or stress. And she stated that she had a lot of anxiety. The officer asked if her killer is usually patient with her. She stated, yeah, but I get, it just makes me, I know that he definitely gets frustrated a lot. After the officer tried relating to her about stress and anxiety in his own relationships, he segued back to the grabbing of the steering wheel. And the officer asked, you said you were hitting him. Did you grab the steering wheel? Gabby stated, no, I didn't grab the steering wheel only for like a second because I saw the lights come on. But then Gabby rolled back and said, no, I didn't touch the steering wheel at all when the officer asked her again if she grabbed the steering wheel and it swerved. He told her to sit back in the car and she asked for some water and he said that he would see if he could find some. Shortly thereafter, one of the officers said to Gabby's killer, I noticed you have some marks on here and the other officer interjected. She's got some marks on her too. We're just trying to figure out what happened. I know you've probably told the story. This officer is probably going to be the one handling the case. You want to listen to what he has to say, and you could tell him what happened if you don't mind, start from the beginning. So Gabby's killer stated, I don't want to go back too far, but we've been for the past week or so, and then there's some inaudible parts, and the flies here, and it's pretty intense, so the flies have definitely been getting to her. And then my feet are dirty and everything, and I think that our little squabble started because we were hanging out at the coffee shop, and then we got back to the van. I moved our food around, and she gets a little... And the officer cut him off and asked if he needed water, but he said that he was okay. And he continued, I was on, we were going to get water because we ran out, but we just had a little disagreement there and she was getting a little worked up. And I was saying it was just more of a disagreement in that I just wanted to slow the, and then the officer cut him off and asked what was the disagreement about. And clearly Gabby's killer isn't getting his point across. He's dancing around the topic, kind of rambling and not really getting to the truth about what happened, which is the fact that witnesses saw him doing something aggressive to Gabby, prompting the 911 call. So he continued, I wouldn't even call it a disagreement. It was just, I'm dirty and I can't change being dirty. I've got dirty feet. I've got sand and stuff like that. It was, we were at the coffee shop for so long. So I guess there were a few little things, little relationship things. There's a lot of little things. We weren't really physical before the point where I said, all right, let's just take a breather and walk away for a minute. I'll lock up the van and I'll go this way and you can walk that way around the block. It's a nice area. You can go either way. It's all shady. So I said, let's go for a little walk and a breather and come back. I'm not upset with her, but she got all worked up and she had a phone in her hand and keys in her hand and her rings. I was looking for the keys. I didn't want her to go anywhere. And I figured I don't have my phone. I really don't. I don't have a phone. She goes off without me. I'm on my own. So I was saying, let's just go for a walk. And she was trying to get the keys. So I just backed up. And that's when she hit me. I did. I didn't want to push her. I didn't get overtly physical. I'm just trying to keep her away. And then I got really loud. And I was going back up, get away, just give me... And here the officer cut him off again. So you pushed her to create some distance, right? 
What happened after that? You got scratches on your arm and her killer said the phone. Now, all of that, what he just said, it sounds like a bunch of bullshit and minimizing. So he's a filthy slob and it's annoying Gabby because she doesn't want him bringing all that dirt and sand into her van. He said that he can't change being dirty. Um, yes, he can. And he's just being a lazy asshole and not having respect for the beautiful van that Gabby put together. And he probably smelled as bad as he looked. And did you notice that he kept saying words, little, little things, a few little things, a little walk, a little breather, way, way, way too many times. It's overusing the word little in an effort to downplay everything. He's not sitting there telling Gabby to go and take a nice walk in the shade and cool off and take a breather. We know that he is not letting her into the van. And from the sounds of it, it seemed like she wanted to get into her van and drive off without his stupid ass. And he was preventing her from doing that by commandeering her keys and locking her out of her own van, which he had absolutely no right to do. To me, it sounded like Gabby wanted her keys, she wanted her van, and she wanted him and his dirty ass feet to go kick rocks. However, I do understand why Gabby ultimately decided to continue on with him once this blew over. Having this run in with the police was probably a big reality check for the both of them, that they can't behave that way with each other unless they want to attract the attention of law enforcement. And while the two of them probably could have used this talking to by these cops, it seemed like it ultimately only made things worse instead of better. I don't think things were ever going to get better between these two. I think I've sort of forgotten what it's like to try and date a guy in his early 20s. Sometimes they have slobbish, lazy habits, and that's probably what's going on here. Gabby's killer doesn't really seem like he's gotten any real good home training. Based on what we know about his parents now and their behavior, I'm not shocked at all that this is what they raised. So he's trying to minimize. But at the same time, he's trying to place the blame on Gabby by saying that the marks on him are from the phone and Gabby's rings. And he stated she was, I wasn't, it wasn't like a push and she jumped on me. She was already swinging and I was pushed. A lot of anger, her nails, her rings. The officer stated, you've got three specks on your neck and you've got one on the left side of your nose and you've got one on your face. Do you mind lifting up your right sleeve for me? I'm curious about something. What's that from? And he replied, I suppose fingernails, but I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining about those. And the officer asked, is it bruised or tender? And he replied, I'm fine. I love Gabby. I hope she doesn't have too many complaints about me. I just feel bad. I was trying to be loud and say, listen, just to calm her down and be like, okay, look, everyone's watching. Stop this. So next, the officers go back to Gabby and they asked her name and where she's from and they ran her information like they did for her killer. The officers asked where they lived and how long they'd been on that trip. And at this point, the other officer wanted to speak away from the two of them because he got some clarification about the 911 call. One of them said, I just got off the phone with one of those witnesses who reported it. He said that he didn't see the male strike the female. He saw the male trying to lock her out of her vehicle. She even told us that he was trying to lock her out and told her to go take a walk. So she was trying to get in. She eventually couldn't get in and actually clawed her way in through the driver's door, but says, I don't understand why she's doing that. 
I think it's because it was the only door that wasn't locked that she could get through. She's trying to get over him. He's trying to disengage from her. Basically, the caller said he saw him shove Gabby, but couldn't tell if it was an aggression against her or a defense against her. It sounded like to the officer that Gabby was the primary aggressor. The officers then talked about the primary aggressor, no matter who it was, should be arrested. And the officer stated, now that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go to jail. We can do a citation if it meets one of three criteria, which one of them is we can assure that they're not going to be a further risk to each other's safety. The problem is, is that they're living out of the same vehicle. Then one of the officers said, I was about to say that there was actual injury too to the victim, which is him. The other officer stated, right. And I'm getting conflicting stories about why they hit the curb up here. What did he say why he hit the curb? This is what I saw first. Saw him cross the double yellow. I was doing 42 miles per hour. I was, I don't know, probably two car lengths behind him, tapping my whales and trying to get his attention. They knew I was behind him. And then after he crossed the double yellow, he merged over to the right lane. And then out of nowhere, just boom and went and hit the curb. Did he tell you why? He said that she grabbed the wheel and turned it real hard. She said that she was hitting him in the arm. It sounds legit. I mean, I'm sure if I'm driving and my arm's on the wheel and I'm getting hit in the arm, I'm probably pulling at the wheel. I'm sure it was a little of both, and usually the truth is somewhere in between. He's probably trying not to say that he hit her because he probably doesn't want to be charged with domestic assault. He probably would rather say that she pulled the wheel than hit him, if you know what I mean. Unfortunately for her, just because he's bigger and stronger, even if he's not willing to press charges, we can't treat this differently than if it was a male-on-female violence. And we're going to have to charge her, and we can do a citation if there's some arrangement that can be made to separate them. And then we have to let them know that there's a no-contact order in effect. Then we have to let him know that the only way to drop it is going down to the police department during business hours and fill out a waiver which, by the way, what's today, Thursday? It's too late for that. So it will have to be tomorrow, and they're not there till noon, I think, which I'm sure he's going to want to drop it. So they went to talk to Gabby's killer first. Apparently, these officers have come to the determination that he was the victim in all of this. This is probably a good example of those instances when there is a police interaction, and we only know what the body cams can show us, right? We don't know the whole backstory and the context. And as many of you know, these days, even the slightest thing can be considered domestic assault, even fighting over the keys. And if one of the people involved is left with a red mark on their skin, even though the keys technically belong to Gabby and he was refusing to give them to her or refusing to let her into her own vehicle, whoever made the marks is almost always the one that's supposed to be arrested or charged. And it's not up to the victim to drop the charges. If the DA wants to file the charges, they can. And depending on the way things operate in any specific county, and the district attorneys and prosecutors want to do their jobs and try to prevent domestic situations like this in the future, the charges will most likely be filed. So these officers said to Gabby's soon-to-be killer, unfortunately, in the state of Utah, we don't have discretion on some things. For example, if I pull you over for speeding and I want to give you a warning, I can do that. If I want to give you warnings for all kinds of stuff, I can, but there's a few things I can't. I'm not in charge. And one of the things the state doesn't give discretion is charges when it comes to domestic assault. 
And it sounds like you guys are living together, so you meet the statute for domestic partners. And you do have injury and both an independent witness and probably the next person we're going to talk to as well, which is we haven't talked to yet, but the one that we did talk to and your own companion have made it clear that she was the primary aggressor and that she was striking you and you received injuries. You haven't admitted to striking her. She has not admitted to you striking her. The witness did not see you strike her. So at this point, you are the victim of domestic assault. Gabby's killer replied, come on, man. And the officer continued, even if you don't want to pursue this, we don't have a choice. The law says we have to charge her. It doesn't say we have to put her in jail, but it also says we have to separate you, a no contact order, and that we have to put her in jail if we cannot separate you. The problem is you guys are out of Florida living together in a van. How are we supposed to separate you? Now, they have some back and forth about what to do. And Gabby's killer even offered to be the one to go to jail. I mean, how chivalrous, right? And the officer told him that they can't do that because he didn't break any laws. But anyway, in the end, we know that they end up letting Gabby have her van and Brian ended up at a motel that evening. And Gabby was not arrested that day. And I assume her killer went to the police department the following day and signed the waiver to lift the no contact order. And the two of them went on their miserable way. And ultimately, no charges were filed, as far as I know. And I have a few more details about this interaction with the police in Moab that I'll discuss a little bit later on. So a lot of the pundits and the talking heads like to say that Gabby would be alive today if those officers had arrested one or both of them. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I don't think it would have helped, but I don't think it would have caused the story to have ended differently. It may have prolonged the inevitable, but if anything, I think one of them getting arrested could have very well caused the inevitable to have happened sooner. Getting arrested and charged with a crime is an incredibly stressful thing to happen and can end up being very costly both in money and in your time, having to go to classes, community service, not to mention the fact that it can have an effect on the rest of your life your ability to get a job, stuff like that. And all that is going to do is add another layer of stress and anxiety that this couple already can't cope with the situation that they're currently in. It is my personal opinion that this interaction with the police made things worse between the two of them. The mess and the chaos that their relationship was had just become very public. These officers did not know that Gabby was traveling with a very dark and angry individual. And you know, there are those who think that these officers cut Gabby a break because she's young, blonde, blue-eyed, pretty, and white. But this is Utah we're talking about. More than 85% of the state is made up of white people. So can we really accuse these officers of giving preferential treatment in this situation? If anything, it may have been Gabby's crying and the tears and the sobbing that really got those officers in the feels, more so than her looking like every other Utahan. So yeah, the only way I think that either one of them getting arrested may have changed the outcome of what ended up happening is whoever it was that got arrested got their parents involved. If Gabby went to jail and she called her parents, one of them... And I don't know why, I just feel like it would most likely be her dad. 
flew out there to Utah to bail her out and then drove the van back home with her and hopefully he would have told the boyfriend to get lost. Gabby may have even resisted that. She could have likely insisted on continuing on with her road trip, even if she was arrested, or at the very least begin the drive home, but it is likely, I think, that she would have carried on, even if she had to get her parents to bail her out of jail. And what if Gabby's killer was arrested and held for 12 hours? It's likely that he would have called his parents. I don't know for sure, though. It didn't happen. But his parents, they would have come running and they would have probably babied him all the way through it and just did whatever it was that he told them to do or he would just continue to do whatever it was that he wanted to do. And that is purely based on knowing his parents' role in this whole mess. When the shit hit the fan and the story made national headlines, his parents did nothing. They didn't care about Gabby. They only cared about themselves and their killer son. They hid like cowards, and they protected him. When it mattered the most, they turned their back on what the right thing to do was and chose to align themselves with a killer. I don't know what their killer son was telling them. He was probably making up a bunch of lies. But as soon as Gabby's family reported her missing, they both shoved their heads in the sand and refused to speak to anyone. Gabby should have been like a daughter to them. They should have cared as if she were their daughter. I would expect nothing less, considering she was living with them at the time she went missing. They should have been beside themselves with worry and fear, regardless of what their killer son was telling them. And granted, all they could know was what he told them. And they could have at least told that to Gabby's mom and dad. That's all they could do if their killer son was feeding them lies. Just speak to what they know. But they didn't even have the heart or the integrity to do that. And to me, that makes them no better than the killer son that they raised, stood by, protected, and defended. Absolutely no better than him. Getting back to my point, I believe this contact with the police made the stress and anxiety of being trapped in that van together worse than it was before. And I feel like an arrest would have done the same, if not more so. Because look, even after one or both parties are taken into custody, they still have to deal with each other in the aftermath. And now, with criminal charges and pending court dates looming, it's only more fuel for the fire. More things to fight about. More things to blame each other for. And the truth is, the most vulnerable person of the two of them was Gabby. Even if she was kicking his ass, he was always going to be the bigger threat. The only lesson from this police stop for Gabby's killer, his only takeaway, was to make sure that the next time he yelled at, fought with, picked on, belittled, or abused Gabby, is to do it when nobody else was around to witness it. I don't care that he had marks on him. She was traveling with an asshole who didn't believe in her. He didn't support her or value her wishes or her dreams. He put her down and he made her feel like she was incapable of achieving her goals or succeeding at creating an online presence for herself. All we have is that one tiny little snapshot in that police body cam video where Gabby clearly stated, he doesn't believe I can do it. And that's all we need to hear to know exactly what he was saying and how he was acting towards her. He was literally on a months-long trip 
the sole purpose of which was to do exactly the thing that he was telling her she couldn't do. There was no way that this was destined to be a dream come true adventure for Gabby if her companion is telling her that she can't do it. I bet that Gabby lived every single one of her 22 years with her family, friends, and loved ones telling her every day, yes, you can, only to finally make her dreams a reality and to bring along one of the most significant people in her life at the time who's telling her, no, you can't. What a piece of human garbage to be shitting on her dreams while she's in the middle of making them happen. I swear, he is just such garbage. The reason why they got pulled over in the first place was because Gabby's killer was trying to lock her out of her own van and refusing to give her her keys, which he had no right to do. In the eyes of the law, since Gabby was the one who left marks on Brian while trying to fight for her keys and to fight her way into the van, she's the aggressor and probably should have been arrested. I can imagine that she was scared and her killer was acting like a sorry little punk because he couldn't bully the police like he bullied Gabby. He was driving like an asshole, speeding way over the limit. He was the one behind the wheel, and I don't even care what Gabby was doing to him, but whatever it was, he was in control of the vehicle. He was the one who crossed over the double yellow lines. And as soon as Gabby saw the cops had flipped on their lights to pull them over, I can imagine she was saying something like, your dumbass driving is getting us pulled over. Get back to the right side of the road. And she probably yanked the steering wheel or his arm to force him into the correct lane and direction of travel, overcompensating and hitting the curb in doing so, causing the police to think that they were drinking. Gabby took responsibility for that, but her killer took responsibility for none of it. He never admitted to stealing her keys or locking her out of her own vehicle. His bitch ass framed it as wanting her to take a little walk, take a little breather, Stealing one's keys and locking one out of one's own vehicle is not an effective way of encouraging someone to take a breather. I mean, come on, ladies. You're in the middle of the desert during one of the hottest months of the year, and your man is trying to lock you out of your car? I'm sorry, but I'd be scratching and clawing in an effort to regain possession of my keys too. Or I'd be calling the cops myself. I'd give him the option, fight me or fight the cops. Gabby left marks on him because he belittled her. He told her she would never be what she wanted to be. He put her down. He made her feel bad. He bullied her. And he did so because he was a powerless, soulless, ballsless fuck who was nothing and a nobody who absolutely did not deserve to even be in the same room as Gabby, much less in the same van. He did not deserve to be a part of anything Gabby was doing. There was absolutely no place for him in the life that Gabby wanted to live. But somehow he managed to weasel his way into her heart and into her mind. And she was probably just too young and naive to realize how toxic and poisonous that this guy was until she was trapped in the middle of nowhere in a van with him. If Gabby had survived this road trip, I don't think their relationship would have lasted much longer. But she really did put all her eggs in one basket, leaving Long Island and taking that leap of faith going down there to Florida to be with that asshole. If she would have survived, she would have probably had some hard lessons to learn about love and loss. One of the best ways to get to know someone is to live with them. And I guess one of the best ways to know what someone is really like deep down into their heart and soul is to try living with them on the road. 
by the end of it, if you feel like killing each other, then you might want to reassess your life choices. But nobody ever thinks that they're going to die before the journey is over. So the next day, Gabby and her killer are seemingly trying to carry on with their road trip. He posted what would be his final picture on Instagram, taken at Arches National Park, still in Utah, still in and near Moab where they got pulled over. And his caption, so stupid, it said, humans are primates, great apes in fact. Okay, Captain Anthropology, God, don't you wish you could just go back in time and grab Gabby by the shoulders and shake some sense into her? Like, what the hell are you doing with this guy? You can do so much better than this. Run, 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 far away. Chase those rainbows and butterflies. And let this guy go play with monkeys and apes so they can go throw poop at each other. Now, one of the more confusing things about this whole saga was the flight that Gabby's killer took from Salt Lake City, Utah to Florida supposedly to get some items and empty and close a storage unit to save money as he and Gabby contemplated extending the road trip. Well, that's the official story from the killer's family attorney. And to that I say, bullshit. There's no way in hell I'm going to believe that these two actually wanted to stay on this trip longer than they had already planned. We know how he felt about it. We know that he didn't believe in Gabby. Maybe they still had some residual closeness and tender moments, but by this time, Gabby had already seen her killer's true colors. But you know, she's probably wanting to hold on tight to this adventure of hers and isn't going to be so fast to let this dickhead of a downer that she brought along with her to ruin it completely. Gabby sacrificed everything for this trip. I don't blame her for not wanting to give up, but I still have a hard time believing that they wanted to extend it. However, I would believe that this trip is carrying on longer than they actually anticipated because of all of the fighting. But if these two were so hard up for money, it really doesn't make any sense at all for him to purchase plane tickets to fly back and forth in order to close a storage unit. It doesn't save money to pay for a round trip flight just to do that. It wastes money. And it goes against everything these two supposedly believe in, being environmentalists and conservationists, especially him talking about the human infestation of the planet Earth, wasting money when you supposedly need money by traveling by way of flying, one of the most significant contributors to pollution and climate change. I mean, it's just BS to me all around. And he was gone for six days. That's a long time to leave Gabby alone in Utah. I have a daughter very close in age to Gabby, and if I were traveling across the country with her in a van, I would feel very, very uneasy about leaving her alone for one night, much less for six. I don't even think my daughter would be okay with it. In fact, I know she wouldn't. But everybody's different, and maybe Gabby was as independent as she was free-spirited. And perhaps she did welcome the time and distance apart from Mr. Dark and Brooding, I just tend to think that there is more behind this almost week-long trip that he took back to Florida because by the time he got back, Gabby Petito did not exist for very much longer. This is purely my own speculation, but knowing what we know about Gabby, I don't think him leaving for six days while she hung back in Utah by herself 
would have been something that she would have really wanted to do. If we assume Gabby's killer was exhibiting the traits of a typical abuser, it's possible that Gabby didn't think she could cope with this road trip without him. And he could have really made her feel that way by the way that he treated her. Maybe her killer did have some business to take care of back in Florida. I don't really know. But I can't help but think that there is some level of him wanting to hurt Gabby or to spite her. To show her how he really felt. That she was never going to make a name for herself in the social media influencer verse. And even if she did, she would never be able to do it without him. And maybe this was one of his ways of showing her. I can totally see an abuser acting like this. You think you can make it without me? Go ahead and try. And then storming off in a big old huff like a tantrumy man baby trying to teach Gabby a lesson. Like I said, I don't really know what happened, but I just think that there is much more behind it all that we may never know. Because he returned to Salt Lake City on August 23rd. And two days later, Gabby would make what would be her last Instagram post ever. As stated, Gabby's killer flew back to Salt Lake City, as one does when one is apparently strapped for cash while in the middle of a cross-country road trip, reuniting with Gabby. The next day, they checked out of the hotel that Gabby was apparently staying in, also as one does while strapped for cash. And according to Gabby's mother, she spoke to her via FaceTime as she was checking out and leaving the hotel. Now, I don't know if it was ever reported if Gabby spoke to any of her family during the six days that her killer was on this trip to Florida. But because this FaceTime call was the only thing that I could find that's been confirmed as we count down Gabby's final days, I have this feeling that Gabby may not have been talking to her family as much, at least not on the phone or on FaceTime, because her killer had flown home to Florida. If I were a parent, which I am, even of an adult child, again, which I am, I would be highly upset if I found out my daughter's road trip companion left her alone for almost a week in the middle of the United States. There aren't any reports of Gabby FaceTiming with her family during that time. The only one confirmed is the one when she and her killer were back together and checking out of the hotel. From there, the couple headed to Wyoming. And that was a long time in Utah, and that very well may have been the unintended extension of this trip. They were fighting, and it was causing them to be unable to move on to their next destination, especially if one of them was acting like a big baby and went home crying to his mommy and daddy. I mean, is that his idea of taking a breather? That selfish prick? Yeah, when he wanted Gabby to quote-unquote take a breather, he stole her keys, shoved her, and locked her out of her van. But when he needed a breather, he booked himself a flight to the comfort of his home so his mommy can kiss it, make it better. What a punk, right? Mommy probably made him some bland food and fed it to him while he sulked at his bed, holding onto his blankie. So on August 25th, Gabby called her family to tell them that she was in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. That is almost a nine-hour drive from Moab, Utah. This was also the day that the final post was made to Gabby's Instagram. But there are some things about this post that don't really make much sense. Based on what Gabby's friends pointed out about the length of her hair in this picture, 
It seems to have been taken sometime in the past. It was taken in front of a monarch butterfly mural located in Ogden, Utah, and it's captioned Happy Halloween, and she's holding a knitted pumpkin. Nobody is tagged and neither is any location, so we don't really know for sure if it was her who posted it. It didn't make any sense because Gabby used her Instagram to track her travels and her locations. So for the random picture with the random caption about Halloween in August, it has some believing that Gabby may have already been dead by then. And this was her killer's lame attempt at keeping her online presence alive. I've read in some places that the posting of this picture could have been Gabby making a cry for help. But I don't think Gabby would be this cryptic. I don't think she would post anything distressing on the internet either. And it seemed like she had a strong family support system that she could have reached out to at any point in time. But it's hard to say what Gabby was thinking or feeling in the final days of her life. I don't think I've heard any of her family say that there was a time when they became concerned for her because of anything that she was telling them. It was her silence that sent up the red flags. In total, Gabby only had four posts to her Instagram during the month of August. And the last one, the one with the pumpkin and the happy Halloween, most don't even think that she made that one. By August 25th, Gabby wasn't giving her family regular updates and phone calls from the road. And after that date, no one ever spoke to her again. And even though August 25th was the last time anybody in Gabby's family spoke to her on the phone that we know of, Gabby's family were continuing to receive text messages from her until August 30th. The final text message Gabby's mother received from her phone stated that she did not have any service in Yosemite. Because we're fairly certain that Gabby is dead by this time, we must assume that it was her killer sending these messages from Gabby's phone to her family. And that makes sense because he's such a flipping idiot, he's texting Yosemite, which is located in the state of California, when he probably meant Yellowstone, which is located in Wyoming, as he's trying to cover for the fact that he's murdered their daughter. And if Gabby's family did have any concern about why is she texting Yosemite when they thought she was in Wyoming, they probably made the same assumption that she meant to say Yellowstone. But I don't think Gabby would have made that mistake. Her killer? Yes. Perhaps because he was too busy waxing philosophical in anthropology class when he should have been paying more attention in geography class instead. On September 1st, 2021, Gabby's killer reappeared back home in Florida with her van, but without her. The next thing we officially know is that Gabby's parents reported her missing in the state of New York in the county that they lived in on September 11th, 2021. It was then that Gabby's story galvanized the country. But in the interim, Gabby's parents were becoming increasingly worried through the first 10 days of September. They tried repeatedly to reach out to the killer's family. They knew that he was back in Florida, but Gabby was nowhere to be found. And they got completely ignored by all of them. They wouldn't answer the phone. They wouldn't reply to text messages. They just stayed completely silent and hid inside their home. After Gabby's family reported her missing, they took to the media to demand answers from the family of their daughter's boyfriend. 
Gabby's mom told the world, I talk to my daughter almost every day. We never go more than two days without speaking to each other. So the missing persons report was made in New York and the word got sent down to law enforcement in the county where the killer's family resided, but they refused to speak to the police when they showed up at their home. So the natural conclusion everyone jumped to is that the killer and his family are hiding something. And with that, Gabby's story exploded in the media. All four of her parents, Bio and Step, stood united in their effort to bring about awareness regarding their missing daughter. And it was them turning to the media, along with Gabby's compelling story and her social media presence and the desire to find out what happened. It, all of it, was something that grabbed interest across the country. Everyone wanted an answer to the question, where's Gabby? And what did he do to her? The internet went crazy. And yours truly here was quietly following the story, but... I had never put out an episode about it until now. I think enough time has passed and I feel like it's allowed me to be able to bring you a beginning, a middle, and an end to all of this. And while the internet was busy with all the theories and conjecture, the main goal for law enforcement was to find Gabby. In the meantime, Gabby's killer's sister, Cassie, she spoke to Good Morning America, as well as to a throng of protesters that had began gathering outside the Landry family home in the days following the reports of her killer having returned there without Gabby. In Cassie Landry's interview on Good Morning America, which aired in early October of 2021, she stated that the last time she saw or spoke to her brother was on September 6th, five days after he returned home without Gabby. His parents said the last time they saw him was on September 14th, 2021, three days after Gabby was reported missing. Prior to going on GMA, Cassie spoke to the protesters outside her home. She said that there were misunderstandings that have circulated about what her brother was doing in the days before Gabby was reported missing. At this time, she said that the last time she saw her brother was September 1st, but I think she was mistaken because she saw him on a family camping trip that they all took a few days after he arrived back in Florida going camping together. It'll be brought up a little bit later on in this episode. But, you know, these people, they're just going about their lives, vacationing, camping, with no worry, no wonder or concern as to why it is Gabby's killer showed up with her van, but without her. Either this guy is a really good liar, or they're just the most ignorant people on the planet. Or perhaps they knew, and they were just helping their son cover up and protect him. After the missing persons report was filed, law enforcement officials in Florida contacted their counterparts in Wyoming and requested information about either a credit card or debit card belonging to Gabby being used in Jackson, Wyoming. According to Gabby's credit card records, it showed that gas was being purchased for her van on August 27th near the Grand Teton National Park. Using this information, Investigators began trying to lay out a timeline for the places that Gabby and her killer were at and when they were there. Investigators in Wyoming did a video canvas and searched through hours and hours of footage of the places that the two of them may have been in order to put together the most accurate timeline possible. 
These officers went through hundreds and hundreds of hours of video. They finally found Gabby's van on August 27, 2021 at 12.14 in the afternoon, pulling into the parking lot of a Whole Foods grocery store. The two of them can be seen getting out of her van and walking towards the entrance of the store. Inside the store, Gabby and her killer can be seen just looking around. You can kind of see that they're together, but it's like they're sort of distant from one another at the same time. Gabby's looking around, and he's just standing around. They're going up and down the aisles, and he's sort of just hanging back. And she's walking with her arms crossed almost the whole time. It just looked weird and uncomfortable. And what's even more odd is that neither one of them made any purchases. They just wandered around and then left. Law enforcement were also made aware of an incident that happened at a Tex-Mex restaurant called the Mary Piglets, also in the city of Jackson, which also happened to be the same day that they were seen in the Whole Foods video. Investigators spoke to the restaurant's manager and learned that Gabby and her killer were there around noon and they had lunch. And what was really odd was that the two of them left the restaurant without paying. The manager followed them out and asked them to pay their bill, which they did, but it was such a strange thing for the two of them to do. And it seems like it's an indicator, those of us looking back on this incident, that there's something really way off with the both of them. They may have been running low on funds and it was probably starting to wear on them. But we also know that after he murdered Gabby, her killer made about $1,000 in unauthorized purchases on her Capital One credit card. So she had some resources because he used them to go on some kind of spending spree after she was dead. As the investigation into Gabby's disappearance reached a fever pitch, it was on September 20th when the Moab Police Department released the 911 call that led to the traffic stop that they made back on August 12th, which I already went over with you in detail. Also released on the 20th was the body cam footage of the traffic stop itself. And you know, it really truly gave us a glimpse into Gabby's world beyond what she was posting on Instagram and on YouTube. Everything Gabby's family, friends, and followers thought of her and her relationship with her killer had all of a sudden shifted. It wasn't all butterflies and rainbows like Gabby wanted everyone to think. And Gabby was clearly way more emotional than her killer was. In fact, he was trying to be somewhat jovial and lighthearted, at times cracking a joke or two. And if you didn't know these two, it would be easy to assume that Gabby was the one who was emotionally unglued and hysterical, while well, he's all Mr. Cool, Calm, and Collected. And abusers get good at putting on a veneer of normalcy when confronted like this. And this is when everyone really began to realize that it was looking like Gabby had found herself in an abusive relationship. She told the officer in that video that he grabbed her by the face. And this is not the way the average man speaks to a woman by grabbing her face. It's a really strong exertion of control. And people who argue just don't do that to one another. And 
it probably wasn't the first time that he did it. And it surprised no one that he would go on to use those same hands in grabbing her face to manually strangle her to death, likely just two weeks later. And one of those weeks, they spent apart. So things escalated very quickly. And it was also in that body cam video that we learned that Gabby's killer didn't believe in her. He didn't believe that she could build a successful social media platform. She even called him a downer to the Moab police officer that she was speaking to. You know, Gabby was in a really terrible position, stuck out there with someone who is working hard at tearing her down because that's what abusers do. They strip their victims of their identity and their humanity to make them feel insignificant, to make them feel like nothing, so that it makes it that much easier for the abuse and the control to carry on. And it was on full display for the world to see. Gabby's killer kept her keys from her. He kept her van from her. He was effectively controlling her access to her own property. And for her to try and take responsibility and admitting that she was the one who hit him, and she said that she hit him first, meaning that he did strike her, if you read between the lines of what she was saying to that police officer. But in speaking to law enforcement, Gabby is trying to prevent him from getting into trouble. She was blaming herself, which frequently happens with victims because they're so used to their abusers blaming them for everything that goes wrong. It was a side of Gabby that nobody in her life ever saw before. It's heartbreaking. The body cam footage of Gabby's killer getting a ride to a motel, a motel that was paid for by victims' services because he was determined to be the victim in this domestic situation. When they dropped him off, he's smiling like these cops were his buddies. And it just really enrages me, and I just, I hate looking at him. I just can't with that guy. But looking at her Instagram post from that very same date that they were pulled over, you would never know the fear and the turmoil that Gabby was actually going through. That was the reality behind those happy photographs that ultimately led to her death. We know that Gabby's killer returned to his parents' home in Northport, Florida on September 1st without Gabby with her van. On August 30th and September 1st, he used her debit cards or her credit cards and her PIN numbers to access her bank accounts and her money that he had no authorization to use. On September 11th, Gabby's parents reported her missing. On September 15th, her killer was named a person of interest in her disappearance. His parents lawyered up and refused to speak to anyone regarding anything involving Gabby or their son. Two days later, on September 17th, his parents reported him missing and made the claim that they had not seen him since September 13th. As far as I know, since the time police became involved in Gabby's missing persons case, Law enforcement never laid eyes on her killer. If they did, it was mistaken identity or a rumor. Search warrants were obtained, which led to Gabby's van, an external hard drive, and the killer's family Mustang, all being seized by law enforcement. By then, the whole country was paying attention to the search for Gabby Petito. But there wasn't a whole lot of hope that Gabby was alive somewhere. There was this very slim chance 
that her killer perhaps ditched her someplace in Wyoming, and somehow, someway, she's making it out there on her own, living off the land and off the grid, that she's lost, she doesn't have her phone, and she's out there hoping somebody sends a search party to come find her. As far-fetched as it sounded, when you don't know, then all you have is hope. And from all the video canvassing and the development of the timeline, the chances were high that Gabby was somewhere in the Teton National Park. Based on a camping app that Gabby and her killer were using, the investigators were able to narrow down the location of where she most likely would be. The pressure was on the search and rescue team in this area of Wyoming to get out there and to find her as the summer was coming to an end and the weather was becoming unforgiving. And if they didn't find her, they were going to have to call off the searches until the spring of 2022 when the blankets of snow melted away. Searchers scoured the areas surrounding Gabby's last known locations by horseback, by foot, along this really beautiful river. And then on September 19th, 2021, one of the members of the search and rescue spotted her. Gabby was found right in the middle of the day, right next to the river. The person who found her said that she was lying on her side. And everything about how she looked would suggest that she peacefully laid down, curled up, and died. But we know that that is not what happened. Gabby was laying on a hill, but her head was pointed downhill. And nobody would lay on a hill peacefully in that direction. We would always lay with our head oriented uphill. Once that all sank in, the searchers realized that there was nothing about the way that Gabby was found that would indicate that she laid there on her own and just expired. But because she was on her side and in a position that one might fall asleep in, it led investigators to believe that her killer placed her in that position to make it look like that she just fell asleep. And he left her there, probably hoping that the elements or the wildlife would just do away with her. I think I can say that those of us across the country who are following this story, that we were collectively heartbroken when we heard the news that Gabby's remains were found. And then we found out that after her body was autopsied, that her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head along with manual strangulation. And this heartbreak, it morphed into devastation and then into anger because we all knew who made her that way. And he was running and hiding from the world like a coward that we already knew that he was. And I have no doubt that his family were complicit. So then the picketing and the protesting that had been going on at the killer's family home and people were chanting and shouting for the family to speak up and tell what happened. And it was presumed that the killer was possibly hiding out inside the home. So everyone was waiting with bated breath for anyone, but especially for him to show his face. But Gabby's killer would never do so. He would actually never be seen again. And soon the word started to spread that Gabby's killer had been reported missing by his family too. And now the craziness surrounding the story went next level. Everyone wanted to see Gabby's killer taken into custody. Everybody was looking for him. 
By this time, he was wanted for more than just some unauthorized use of a credit card. He was wanted for Gabby's murder. The internet theories again went wild with all of the conjecture and all the sightings and everyone was either speculating or just plain making up stories. Everybody was claiming to have seen Gabby's killer all across the United States. I don't think that there was any way that this guy was going to go anywhere out in the open without being spotted. He wouldn't have gotten far at all. He certainly wouldn't have been able to make it out of the state of Florida, much less out of the country, which some people were speculating. All the while, law enforcement in Florida were searching an area called the Carlton Reserve, which is about 20 minutes north of where the killer and his family resided in Northport. And the reason why they were searching the area was because his parents told investigators that that is where their son last was as far as they knew. At that point, it was getting into October. We had been following Gabby's story for more than a month by then. The suspicious thing was that his parents had gone out supposedly to go searching for their son. And right away, by some miraculous coincidence, they just so happened to find some items that belonged to him. In all of the swampy, marshy mess that is Florida, all of a sudden, they find these important clues and pieces of evidence? Right. So his parents called police to tell them the location in order to help narrow their search down for their son. And after scouring the Carlton Reserve for weeks on end, law enforcement finally got the tip from the parents themselves. And voila, they find skeletal remains. Dental records confirmed that the remains were those of Gabby's killer. Other things that were found along with him were his backpack and a notebook that contained somewhat of a confession, but a confession that was written by a murderer, a liar, an abuser, and a coward. So take what was said with a grain of salt. Gabby, I wish I was right by your side. I wish I could be talking to you right now. I'd be going through every memory that we've made, getting even more excited for the future. I can't live without you. I've lost every day that we could have been together, every holiday. I'll never get to play with unintelligible. I'll never go hiking with TJ. I loved you more than anything. I can't bear to look at our photos, to recall the great times because it is why I cannot go on. When I close my eyes, I will think of laying on the roof of the van, falling asleep to the sight of a meteor shower at the Crystal Geyser. I will always love you. If you were reading Gab's journal, looking at the photos of our life together, flipping through old cards, you wouldn't want to live a day without her. Knowing that every day you'll wake up without her, you wouldn't want to wake up. I am so very sorry for her family because I love them. I'd consider her younger siblings my best friends. I'm sorry to my family. This is a shock to them as well as a terrible grief. They loved her as much, if not more than me. A new daughter to my mother, a new aunt to my nephews. Please don't make this harder for them. This occurred as an unexpected tragedy. Rushing back to our car, trying to cross the streams, of Spread Creek before it got too dark to see, too cold. I hear a splash and a scream. I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment, shouted her name, 
I found her breathing heavily, gasping my name. She was freezing cold. We had just come from the blazing hot national parks in Utah. The temperature had dropped to freezing, and she was soaking wet. I carried her as far as I could down the stream towards the car, stumbling, exhausted, in shock, when my knees buckled and I knew I couldn't safely carry her. I started a fire and spooned her as close to the heat. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long. I couldn't at that time realize that I should have started a fire first, but I wanted her out of the cold, back to the car. From where I started the fire, I had no idea how far the car might be. Only knew it was across the creek. When I pulled Gabby out of the water, she couldn't tell me what hurt. She had a small bump on her forehead that eventually got larger. Her feet hurt, her wrist hurt, but she was freezing, shaking violently. While carrying her, she continually made sounds of pain. Laying next to her, she said little, lapsing between violent shakes, gasping in pain, begging for an end to her pain. She would fall asleep and I would shake her awake, fearing she shouldn't close her eyes if she had a concussion. She would wake in pain, start the whole cycle again, while furious that I was the one waking her. She wouldn't let me cross the creek. Thought like me, this fire would go out in her sleep and she'd freeze. I don't know the extent of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful, that it is what she wanted. But I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked. I was in shock. But from the moment I decided, took her pain away, I knew I couldn't go on without her. I rushed home to spend any time I had left with my family. I wanted to have James or TJ kill me. James's Gabby's stepfather and TJ is her brother. But I wouldn't want them to spend time in jail over my mistake, even though I'm sure they would have liked to. I am ending my life not because of fear of punishment, but rather because I can't stand to live another day without her. I've lost our whole future together, every moment we could have cherished. I'm sorry for everyone's loss. Please don't make life harder for my family. They lost a son and a daughter. The most wonderful girl in the world. Gabby, I'm sorry. I have killed myself by this creek in the hopes that animals may tear me apart, that it may make some of her family happy. Please pick up all of my things. Gabby hated people who litter. So that's the best that this coward could come up with. Some BS that he expects the world to just believe that Gabby begged him to kill her. He can't even own what he did in death. He knew nobody would believe him, but if his family wants to buy this crap, so be it. They're the ones who have been left to clean up all the wreckage and destruction that their son left behind. I would have had a hell of a lot more sympathy for them if they had only done the right thing in the beginning and told Gabby's killer that if he didn't turn himself in, they were going to do it. And if he chose to hide, he couldn't do it in their house. And they should have gotten on the phone with Gabby's family and stood shoulder to shoulder with them at every press conference and made a public plea for their son to do the right thing and turn himself in. That would have been the best way to love and support him. But no, they chose complicity and duplicity instead. And they're going to have to live out the rest of their lives living in the dark recesses, 
hiding from the world because of what they did and what they didn't do. They were going to lose their son one way or another, but all they ended up doing was to help rob Gabby's family of the answers and the truth that they deserve. And it's just proof once again, as we've said many a times on this show, the rotten apples sure don't fall far from the rotten tree. On April 28, 2022, Gabby's parents, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Gabby's killer's parents, seeking $50 million in damages. In it, it described their relationship with his family as cordial. That the last communication Gabby had with her father was on August 21, 2021. The last communication that she had with her mother was August 27th. It alleges that Gabby was murdered on August 27, 2021 by the defendant's son, that her cause of death was blunt force injuries to the head and neck with manual strangulation, that her killer sent messages back and forth to himself from Gabby's phone to his in an effort to hide the fact that he had murdered her, and that he sent text messages to Gabby's mother again in an effort to hide what he had done. The lawsuit alleged that on or about August 28, 2021, Gabby's killer advised his parents that he had murdered her. On that date, they spoke to attorney Steve Bertolino and sent him a retainer on September 2nd, 2021. Yeah, that's a little consciousness of guilt, right? On August 20th, Gabby's killer sent a text to her mother stating that there was no service in Yosemite Park in an effort to continue to deceive her mother into believing that she was still alive. On September 1st, Gabby's killer returned to the home of his parents, driving Gabby's van. At this point, there was never any contact between Gabby's parents and the parents of her killer. From August 27th, 2021 until September 19th, 2021, when Gabby's remains were found at the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area in Wyoming, her parents were extremely distraught and were attempting to locate Gabby. While Gabby's family was suffering, the killer's family went on vacation to Fort DeSoto Park from September 6th through the 7th. They went on vacation knowing that their son had murdered Gabby. It is believed that they knew where her body was located and further knew that her parents were attempting to locate her. In an effort to avoid any further contact with Gabby's mother, on or about September 10th, 2021, she was blocked by the killer's mother on her cell phone such that neither calls nor texts could be delivered. And the killer's mother also blocked Gabby's mother on Facebook. And remember, just the very next day, Gabby's family reported her missing. So they were trying to contact the killer's family, but they got blocked. On September 14th, with full knowledge that Gabby had been murdered by their son, it is believed that they knew the whereabouts of her body as well. They issued the following statement. It is our understanding that a search has been organized for Miss Petito in or near Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. On behalf of the Laundry family, it is our hope that the search for Miss Petito is successful and that Miss Petito is reunited with her family. For the Laundries to express their hope that Gabby was located and reunited with her family at a time when they knew that she had been murdered by their own son was beyond outrageous. On September 16, 2021, attorney Richard Stafford, on behalf of Gabby's family, issued a letter to the parents of Gabby's killer as follows. We are writing this letter to you to ask you to help find our beautiful daughter. 
We understand you are going through a difficult time and your instinct to protect your son is strong. We ask you to put yourselves in our shoes. We haven't been able to sleep or eat and our lives are falling apart. We believe you know the location of where your son left Gabby. We beg you to tell us. As a parent, how could you let us go through this pain and not help us? As a parent, how can you put Gabby's younger brothers and sisters through this? Gabby lived with you for over a year. She was going to be your daughter-in-law. How can you keep her location hidden? You were both at Jim and Nicole's house. You were both so happy that your son and Gabby got engaged and were planning to spend their lives together. Please, if you or your family have any decency left, please tell us where Gabby is located. Tell us if we are even looking in the right place. All we want is Gabby to come home. Please help us make that happen. Despite the fact that Gabby's parents implored them to tell them if their daughter was alive and if she was not where her remains were located, they refused to respond to either her mother or her father. They instructed that all contacts be made through their attorney and he issued a no comment when asked about Gabby's well-being. While Gabby's parents were desperately searching for information concerning their daughter, her killer's parents were keeping their son's whereabouts secret and it is believed were making arrangements for him to leave the country. They knew the mental suffering and anguish of Gabby's parents in not knowing the well-being or location of their daughter and further knew that such mental suffering and anguish increased each day that Gabby was missing. They further knew that they could prevent such additional mental suffering and anguish of Gabby's parents by disclosing what they knew about Gabby, yet they repeatedly refused to do so. And in doing so, they acted with malice or great indifference to the rights of Gabby's parents. They exhibited extreme and outrageous conduct, which constitutes behavior under the circumstances, which goes beyond all possible bounds of decency and is regarded as shocking, atrocious, and utterly intolerable in a civilized community. In November of 2022, the lawsuit was settled and Gabby's parents were awarded $3 million, all of which will go towards the Gabby Petito Foundation, whose mission it is to address the needs of organizations that support locating missing persons and to provide aid to organizations that assist victims of domestic violence situations through education, awareness, and prevention strategies. It is Gabby's family wish to turn their personal tragedy into a positive, and it is their hope that Gabby's foundation will bring these important issues to the forefront. And that brings this 250th episode to a close. Questions, comments, and feedback. Take all of that over to any of the social medias that I mentioned in the beginning. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Join Patreon if you're feeling lucky. That's how we keep the lights on and the treat jars full. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.
Order. today it's only 10 o'clock in the morning um, but it rained all afternoon yesterday oh my 
in the tent set up um, I think our plan for today is to just hang out here in the tent um, doing some morning yoga I love the band. 